This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. I want to welcome you to today's conversation at RAND. I'm Susan Everingham, the director of RAND's Pittsburgh office, and thank you for joining us today to discuss this topic, which has really important ramifications for both our everyday lives and the country as a whole, and that's the international economic strategy. Um, As you know, the U.S. is a key player in global economy and must balance its domestic and international goals shaped by larger economic policies. Because we have a lot to talk about, I will stop talking and turn this over in just a second to RAND's president and CEO, Michael Rich, who's going to give us an overview of the Strategic Rethink Project and why RAND thought doing this project was so important. Michael Rich is going to then introduce Howard Schatz, who is a senior economist and a party RAND faculty member and author of the work that he's going to describe to you in just a minute. And then after his presentation, we're going to be joined by RAND's Vice President for External Affairs, Wynne Burkle, who's going to um, engage with Howard in a conversation about the work before we open up the floor to you all. So I'll give you plenty of time to think of your questions. So uh, enough from me for now. Let me turn it over to Michael. Well, thank you very much, Susan. I see a lot of... uh not old friends, longtime friends here. Uh, So I commissioned this particular series about three years ago, just as the international security situation, which was bleak at the time, uh, seemed to be getting even bleaker. We had an escalation at the time of violence, uh, deadly violence in the Middle East. Uh, Vladimir Putin was accusing the United States around this time of agitation and uh, backing the Uh, democracy protests, uh, pro-democracy protests uh, in various cities in Russia. Uh, Xi Jinping was starting to make aggressive moves in the South China Sea and seize the Scarborough Shoals, which is a little land area that's claimed both by China and the Philippines. Uh, ISIS had not yet declared its caliphate, but was recruiting and assembling equipment and, and other resources in preparation for the declaration. There was intervention fatigue here at home, really no agreement on the purpose of um, American forces, of American diplomacy, and so on. So with the philanthropic gifts that we were fortunate enough to to have, um, I challenged my RAND colleagues uh, to take a fresh look at America's international ambitions. Uh, I asked questions like, what level of international engagement is the American public willing to support and to what end? How much, America, uh, how much does America want and need to lead a world uh, where many problems seem beyond its ability to control? Uh, is there a grand strategy for American diplomacy and defense that would match U.S. interests with the resources required to succeed at that strategy? Uh, we've now published five books in the Strategic Rethink series, and you'll see examples of those uh, outside. Uh, the sixth volume I just heard today is now through our peer review process and is um, into the publication uh, process phase now. Uh, and that will be the final volume, plus we'll have an executive summary of the entire six. Um, the first book was by one of our top scholars in international affairs, Ambassador Jim Dobbins, who came to RAND in 2002. Um, he, together with nine other RAND experts, uh, published a volume last summer called Choices for America in a Turbulent World. 
and it lays out, I think, in a, a very um, uh, straightforward fashion, the policy choices that the next president will face, choices for the global economy, for our policy and stance in Europe, on defense budgets, Asia, Middle East, cybersecurity, a number of other important topical areas. And for those of you who think that Rand only publishes dense 300-page tomes, Ambassador Dobbins uh, covered it all in just 130 pages. He's been uh, in the administration of three different presidents, so I think he knows at pretty senior level, so he knows how to cut to the chase. Now, another book, a second one, covered U.S. partnerships and alliances around the world. Uh, and then Ambassador Charlie Reese took a look at um, the extent to which our national decision-making um, uh, decision apparatus was either functioning well or not, mainly the latter, and outlined a strategy to fix that. We then uh, put out our strategic rethink volume on the defense budget, um, and both of um, uh, th that was done by two main authors, both of whom have had a high-level uh, experience in the Pentagon over the last three presidential administrations. Um, that book showed that the U.S. has a big gap between our stated military strategy and the resources we have to carry out that. In the interest of time, I won't give you the numbers, but it's, it's pretty startling, that, uh, the size of that gap. Um, and, uh, and now we're up to the, the volume that uh, you're going to hear about today. Now, recently, I've been talking about how America, uh, and some of you were at a, uh, a luncheon, I guess it was last month, uh, here in Pittsburgh, um, uh, where I spoke about um, what I've been calling an epidemic of truth decay, uh, in which people feel entitled to their own opinions. And I think, you know, they should, we should have our own opinions. But we're now at a, a, a place where people also seem to feel entitled to their own set of facts. And um, part of the goal of, strategic re of the Strategic Rethink series is to present a sophisticated but reliable set of facts and analysis to serve as the basis for a rational and informed discussion of strategic choices. Um, when you have different interpretations of the same set of facts, I think that's healthy. It promotes compromise and consensus. But when you have um, uh, just a debate that features opinions about opinions, it's a recipe for gridlock. So we're trying to make a contribution. And, and the fifth book in this series about America's place in the international economy uh, is, I think, a good example of what we've been trying to do. It was written by Dr. Howard Schatz, who I'm going to introduce now, uh, one of our very distinguished senior economists. Uh, Howard has worked on a dazzling array of topics in his career. Most of these topics he's worked on at RAND. It's kind of hard to believe there's only one Howard Schatz when I read, read the topics he's worked on. Al-Qaeda's finances, helping Kurdistan and Mongolia restructure their economies. China, he's worked on China. U.S. job displacement, economic integration. He's worked on Mexico. Species conservation in California. Global aging. And then I found out that he is also a card-carrying member of the AAWE. I didn't know what that was, but it turns out it's the American Association of Wine Economists. <laughs> I didn't even know there were wine economists, and I'm proud to know one now. Anyway, his book, the new book, uh, I hope you have a chance to actually dive in. It says some pretty unpopular things, like the United States government is going to need to do two things uh, that... Um, I think are going to be hard 
raise revenues and cut spending, both, not just one. Uh, it says that concludes that globalization is good for America and that sitting on the sidelines is not an option. If we do not keep rewriting the rules uh, of uh, international the international financial system when, when they need updating, other countries will step in and we are not going to like the results. What's notable, I think, is that uh, Howard has um, marshaled a large array of evidence, I think very, very compelling evidence to support these conclusions. Uh, I think it's a powerful antidote to truth decay in this particular topical area. So let me turn it over to Dr. Howard Schatz. Thanks, Michael. Uh, that, was, that was very kind. And uh, uh, for those of you who are curious, and I'm sure most of you are, there is not only an AAWE, but there is a Journal of Wine Economics <laughs> where, where, uh, where you can read um, uh, an article by me about whether, whether boycotts uh, work, particularly the, boy the so-called boycott of French wine in the United States in the Iraq War. And I won't tell you the answer because you're going to want to run out. You're going to want to run out and read that. It'll, it'll be uh, it's very very exciting. <laughs> so, you know the the United States has led the international economy for more than 70 years, and during this time, there's been a tremendous opening of trade, international business, and financial flows. But but more international exchange was never really the point of U.S. international economic policy. Rather, the goal was always to contribute to national economic growth and prosperity. American economic leadership has also resulted in widespread benefits beyond the United States. Globally, incomes have risen and poverty has declined throughout the post-war period. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, absolute poverty was somewhere on the order of 44% of, of the global population around 1980. Absolute poverty, that's living on $1.90 a day, is down now to between 12 and 13%. So, and that's largely because of the international economy. At the same time, overall growth has increased. And even with present difficulties, most people in the world are far better off because the United States and its allies created a rules-based international economic system with strong institutions. And the benefit, extra benefit of that is that most countries found it to their benefit voluntarily to join that system. Despite this long-term trend of growth and development, the new president who takes office in January 2017 is likely to face a highly uncertain and even turbulent environment. The United States is still the world's largest single economy, uh, and the new president will have at his or her disposal a number of tools that they can use to help shape the global economy. What to use those tools for is the big question. Right? Uh, a strong U.S. economy will enable the U.S. to continue to lead the world and will continue to help the U.S. confront and shape the role of its adversaries. Economics is a critical component of any global strategy. I would point to three broad goals for any new administration, regardless of party. One is maintaining and strengthening the global economic system. The second is dealing with China. And the third is supporting global growth. All of these are related. Now, before I get to these, and I will return to them, before I get to these, I want to start with an overview of where we stand. Uh, specifically, any, any strategy wants to first 
understand the environment, understand what your assets are, what your current situation is. And so let me start with the U.S. economy. Where does the U.S. economy stand right now? Right. The U.S. economy has largely recovered from the Great Recession and the financial crisis. Let's uh, take unemployment. I'm showing you uh, the 25-year uh, the average unemployment rate, slightly above 6%. Okay. By mid-2014, the rate had fallen well below that. And that's just not unemployment. What happens is people will see the unemployment rate and will say, yes, yes, what about underemployment? What about all the part-time workers who want full-time jobs? It turns out that the underemployment rate is also well below its long-term average now. So that aspect of the labor market is actually doing quite well. Uh, there are other positive indicators. Uh, they're not very dramatic, but GDP growth has been positive and steady. There's been st pretty steady employment creation, and there's been low inflation. So on the whole, a decent recovery. But policymakers face two significant economic problems, and these are going to be very important to deal with in the medium to long term. Good to start on them now. The first one is despite low unemployment, right, let me back up a second. We always, uh, Michael had said that I, I worked on labor market issues and economic strategy in, in Mongolia and Kurdistan. And everywhere we go, there's an issue of what does it mean that we have low unemployment? All right. So from, from, the, from the standpoint of a labor economist, low unemployment means that if someone is looking for a job, they're likely to get it. Right? And that's one indicator in the labor market, but you don't ever want to limit yourself to that single indicator. So let's start with, let's look at another indicator, and this is a, this is a bigger problem for us. Right? The first is that labor force participation is declining. Right? What is that? Labor force participation is the percentage of working age people who are either working or looking for work. So if that number is declining, that means that more and more people who could be working are simply sitting out the labor market. That's, that's a pretty big problem for us. Right, the second is that middle-level, middle-skill jobs are disappearing. The labor market is widening. There are many more high-skill jobs are growing, lower-skill jobs are growing. So if you have medium levels of education, it's becoming tougher to find a job. That's one, one big problem. Second big problem is the long-term budget outlook, a federal, federal budget outlook, is quite weak. Right? Uh, it, we could uh, say it's terrifying. I think what I'll show you is not yet terrifying, but then I'll try to terrify you after showing this. Uh, so 2015, the Congressional Budget Office came out with its long-term budget outlook. Uh, it comes out with this every year, and it estimated the long-term budget outlook, which, of course, you know, 25-year outlook, it's not going to be right, but it does give us the trend direction, estimated that uh, spending on entitlements plus uh, spending on interest on the national debt will amount to about 95% of estimated federal revenues. Okay. So that means that we're going to have about 5% left over for everything else, education, labor market policies, environmental protection, defense, and diplomacy. Now, this is concerning enough. What's not in here is that uh, the 2016 report has come out. And uh, given, given this warning and given... Actually, about seven or eight years of constant warnings about the U.S. deficit, uh, we find out that the outlook in 2016 is that by 2040, entitlements plus uh, spending on debt will be more than 
of projected revenues, which uh, means if these projections are correct, if we want to do anything besides entitlements and uh, pay back the debt, we will have to borrow. So with these domestic problems, right, why should we even uh, be concerned with the rest of the world? Well, let me now move to how the U.S. relates to the global economy. Right? The, 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 the big point here is that the U.S. is intertwined with the global economy and is becoming more so. Right? So let me uh, illustrate how we're intertwined. First, trade. Right? Imports and exports are at their highest level, uh, certainly in modern history, possibly ever, both compared to GDP and in just absolute levels. That takes us up to 2014. 2015, there's been a little bit of a drop, but still higher than, uh, than ever. And, of course, you can see the financial crisis and the recession in there. Uh, so that's, that's one way that we're intertwined. Now, a lot of the discussion you hear, uh, uh, certainly in the campaign, but generally about policies, about trade. But if you, if you take, come away with a few points, when you think about how we relate to the global economy, you should think more about multinationals, right? Because this is really how the U.S. serves foreign markets and how foreign markets serve the United States, right? So lots of foreign direct investment abroad resulting in what I show you is these are the top line is sales by foreign affiliates of U.S. companies. So the 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 uh, a good example is General Motors uh, makes a joint venture with uh, Shanghai Automotive Industries in China, makes GM cars, sells them in China. That's the that's the top line. Okay, the bottom line is exports. Okay, so you can see the the wide gap that we have between how we serve foreign markets through multinationals, how we serve them through exports. Now, you could say, well, yes, yes, but many, many of those sales by affiliates overseas are actually just being sent back to the United States. That, that actually, it's a very small percentage. Somewhere on the order, working from memory here, so it's probably wrong, somewhere on the order of 5 to 10%. So the vast majority of sales by our foreign affiliates are staying overseas. Right? Works the same way coming into the U.S. market. Not as big a gap, right? but... Foreign companies choose to serve the U.S. market largely by setting up here. That employs Americans. It also brings in more imports because of production networks. Right? So now I have a very short time period, but if we were to lengthen that time period out, you'd see an upward trend as well. Uh, so these are two illustrations of how the United States is intertwined with the global economy. The next step to set the stage of how we relate to the global economy is how do we compare, right? So, so despite the rapid growth of foreign countries, which we would expect, developing countries should be growing faster than advanced countries, despite the financial crisis, despite the recession, the United States remains the world's largest economy. And uh, this is actually really by far. It's managed to maintain its share mostly for the past 25 years. Sh its share of the global economy is a little bit lower than it has been, only about one or two percentage points, though. Right? So we are the dominant economy. China is growing rapidly, but still much smaller. Uh, 2015, the United States was about 24% of the global economy, so almost a quarter of the global economy. China was about 14%. The big concern with, uh, with the global economy 
is what's happening with our largest allies. So the countries that really helped make the global system, the European Union and Japan. And what you can see is in the past 25 years, they've both suffered share drops of at least nine percentage points. They're both getting much smaller relative to the global economy. So these are our most important partners, and they're receding in weight in the global economy. Uh, so, you know, the United States, the largest trading nation, the largest investor, the largest economy, its allies are receding. What then should we do? And here's where I want to return to the point I started with at the beginning. Right? I think three things are really, from a 30,000-foot level, uh, three things are, are, are what the administration, the upcoming administration, should focus on. One is maintaining the rules-based international system. Second is dealing with China. Third, supporting global growth. Let me start with maintaining and improving the rules-based international system. Now, late last year, in a divided uh, decision in Nairobi, the countries of the world decided to uh, basically suspend or end negotiations on a multilateral trade round. This is the first time that's happened. All right, this was the, Euro this is the, the Doha development agenda started in 2001. And this is, this is quite a bit of concern because it is through these large multilateral trade rounds that, that all of the possible deals are on the table. And it's through these large rounds that you can get the entire world to move forward to agreed upon rules. Right. So the first thing is we really want to continue to support the idea of broad-based liberalization. This could mean trying to restart a global trade round. It could mean, again, uh, negotiating broad sets of issues among all countries without putting everything on the table. But it's much better if we can get back to large, a large multilateral round. Given that that round's been suspended, countries are not, are not standing by. There are, uh, there are a couple other things going on right now, right, because countries still want more trade liberalization, and those are the large regional trade deals. We have uh, two in process. One is a Pacific trade deal. The current version is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That has 12 countries, including Japan, uh, about 36% uh, about, uh, of global GDP, a higher proportion of global trade, and the other is a deal between America and the EU. Right. Uh, so now on the Pacific deal, of course, the text will have to be reconsidered. The general idea is good. Rand, we don't take stands on specific uh, specific votes that Congress will face. Right. But but in general, uh, the idea of a Pacific deal is good, and it's certainly something that the U.S. should move forward with one way or another. Same thing with the European Union deal. Now, tariffs between the EU and the United States are quite low, but they can be zeroed out. There can be more regulatory harmonization. And these two deals together will really set the stage for moving forward on a global round and will also set the standard for where other uh, trade deals should go. So Trans-Pacific Partnership, Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, both, uh, both in process. Third step is to ensure that global institutions are strong and are well capitalized. This is, uh, we've already taken steps for this a little bit. For five years, there was a great deal of controversy about the board composition at the IMF. The United States finally took a vote 
uh, joining other countries on how that board would be constituted. And the timing was actually quite good because the global economy is looking uh, weaker and weaker, and you want the IMF to be able to step in with the obligatory rescues that it will have to do uh, as recessions start to hit countries. And we're starting to see that a little bit with some of the resource-rich countries with new programs in, uh, in Nigeria and elsewhere. Let me move on to China. Right? So this is probably the biggest issue beyond the systemic issues. And it's the most consequential relationship that the U.S. will face, probably the most consequential bilateral economic relationship for the world. Despite its current difficulties, China is still growing rapidly, likely will, to continue, likely will continue to grow, and will likely gain more economic influence. The United States will benefit if it can accommodate China's rise within the current global system. Uh, by accommodate, I don't necessarily mean give China everything it wants. What I really mean is we want China in the system rather than outside creating a parallel system. Why do we want this? First, the two economies are highly intertwined uh, in both trade and investment. China is the number one source of imports to the United States, number three destination for U.S. exports, something not very well remarked upon. Since, uh, since 2001, U.S. exports to China have actually grown faster than U.S. imports from China. Now, the imports are starting from a larger base, but the growth rate is higher for our exports to China. Second, U.S. allies have sizable trade investment relationships with China. And no matter or not whether the U.S. wanted to, to go alone regarding China without <coughs> consulting its allies, it really will prove unable to do so. How do we know that? Well, uh, when China opened up membership to the China-led Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the United States encouraged its allies not to join, but its allies joined anyway because they saw it was in their interest to join. And so as it stands now, Five of the four of the seven G7 members are members of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and Canada just announced that it wants to join also. So trying to actively block something that China was doing when other countries saw it was in their interest to join with China proved to be a poor policy choice. Uh, so that's why, right? So, so... How should, we, how should we accommodate China's rise? Well, there are a number of mutually beneficial policies. Right? Uh, one which is not on the table yet, one which is already on the table and under negotiation. The first one is uh, we're negotiating a bilateral investment treaty with China. Now, uh, this will be beneficial to the United States if it's negotiated well, because it'll open up China greater to foreign investment. We'll give U.S. investors better treatment within China and enforceable treatment. And that's really the key, right, is we don't want to go forward with the treaty unless it does both of those things, opening and uh, enforceable national treatment. Why would China do it? Well, within China, there's a sizable reform faction, and it's the international agreements that have generally led China to reform its economy in ways that it know it needs to and in ways that would benefit the world. So this is a mutually beneficial step. The next step is if the Trans-Pacific Partnership or other trade deal comes through, the United States should really create an on-ramp for China. Again, not an instant membership. Uh, China right now uh, is, is really not able to follow the rules of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But with significant reforms, it will be able to. So we want to bring China into that eventually. 
Let me move on to the third point, supporting global growth. Here, uh, here the United States is a bit more limited. Uh, but there are things that we can do. The European Union and uh, Japan, our key economic and security partners, are facing growth challenges. U.S. policy options are limited uh, because, because really much of what these countries need to do is within their own power, within their own domestic policies. And as well, in terms of giving advice, these countries have very fine policymakers and very fine economists. But there are things we can do, greater policy coordination, greater economic integration, and this is where the two regional trade agreements come in. So if you think about Europe, Europe has a massive productivity problem. Even Germany, right, which, is, which appears to be doing very well on the surface, is, is showing essentially zero productivity. Right? Germany is doing well because it's increasing its employment, not because it's increasing its productivity. On the Pacific side, right, the real innovation of the TPP is that it's essentially a free trade agreement between the United States and two countries, Vietnam and Japan. Vietnam we can deal with separately, but this is a uh, trade agreement with Japan is an essential pillar of Abe's reform plan for Japan. So he, see, he sees that his country needs this. This is where the U.S. can help. It's also a largely deficit-free measure for the U.S. For developing countries, the most important tool is, is aid. Now, Aid is, uh, is sometimes counterproductive. Aid is sometimes very inefficient. But on the whole, it's proved helpful, certainly to uh, social welfare and sometimes also to growth. So the issue is here we can increase our aid and try more experimentation, more monitoring and evaluation. It's very difficult to change aid programs. So there is room that way. Last thing in terms of influencing the global economy, right? The U.S. has tremendous power to use sanctions, and this is really an innovation post-2001. Pre-2001 was mostly trade sanctions, some targeted individual sanctions. After 2001, we really learned how to harness the, the, the New York financial system and the global financial system to affect countries very deeply. But you can go too far. It can lead countries to defect. And so we really want to apply sanctions selectively, monitor them to understand what they're doing, how they're affecting countries, and pull back if we need to when they're having counterproductive effects. Now, at the beginning of my talk, I noted the successes of the international system that the United States and its allies helped create. And, and I can't emphasize this enough. This is a system that really was created by the United States for our own interests. Uh, somewhat paradoxically, those successes have resulted in a decline in U.S. economic weight. That means that the United States now more than ever can't really go it alone. We are less dominant than we used to be when we created the system. Selective engagement or retrenchment has an appeal because it would seem to allow the incoming administration to focus temporarily on domestic issues. But it could also lead to an erosion of the international system. Uh, I think given what's happening in Asia right now, the risk is not so much that others would set the rules, other specific countries would set the rules, the United States was able to set the rules because it made something ap appealing for other countries to voluntarily join. The risk is that there would be no country setting the rules, right? that the entire system would erode slowly. And we wouldn't notice it from day to day, but we would notice it eventually. Conversely, maintaining and expanding the rules-based international system 
can have a positive cumulative effect on U.S. growth and economic performance. So the United States will benefit most, I think, by reaffirming and strengthening its ties to the global economy, strengthening international institutions, building on past successes in trade and investment liberalization, and making sure that developing countries have a place in that system. Thanks. I'd now like to uh, have Wynne come up, and uh, we can talk about some of these issues, and I think we both look forward to any questions you all might have as well. Right. Yep. Got it. Thanks. Well, Howard, um, we want to get a chance to get your questions, so I'm going to let's start off with a couple questions, but be thinking of the questions you'd like to ask um, I'm going to start off with a couple just to, to get things going. Um, you know, one of the things you talked about were the two big trade agreements, TTIP, uh, which is an agreement we're trying to work out with Europe um, and Europe amongst itself, and the Trans-Pacific Trans Partnership, uh, uh, which largely Asia, West of Western Pacific. Um, those are the two big deals, trade deals that I'm aware of uh, in terms of global integration. Uh, one for Pacific, one for Europe. Um, and outside of that, is it all just one-on-one, -on -one, country by country? Is there something in between uh, that if, if these two are in some ways held up? Right. So, so it turns out that the, the latest uh, phenomenon uh, and buzzword in international trade are, are mega-regionals. Hmm. And uh, TTIP and TPP are two of several so-called mega-regionals. One that's on the table right now is a Canada-EU trade agreement called CETA, Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, something like that. That's completed. It's waiting for a vote by European governments. Uh, second one is an EU-Japan agreement, uh, same kind of thing. Third one is, is much more interesting. Third one is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. And that, uh, so you know the Canada-EU excludes the U.S. Japan-EU excludes the U.S., the, the RCEP also excludes the U.S. The RCEP are the 10 ASEAN nations plus New Zealand, Australia, India, Japan, Korea, and China. Now, it's not quite as advanced a trade agreement, trade investment agreement as the TPP, mm -hmm. but it does still create another trade block, mm -hmm. right, with benefits for partners that the U.S. will not have. Mm -hmm. So the question then is, well, what's the status of these? Okay. Turns out the trade agreements are hard, right? And especially now, all of the major trading countries are becoming much more protectionist, right? Uh, and it, despite despite a pledge by the G20 countries not to do so, right? Okay. So so uh, Europeans are protesting against the Canada trade agreement, and the RCEP, uh, the Asia trade agreement, was supposed to be finished. Keeps missing deadlines. I believe that, mm -hmm. uh, that 2014 was the hope for a deadline, 2015, uh, then 2016. It now looks like it will miss that. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's evidence that, that certainly the governments of all of these countries very much want trade investment liberalization, but striking a deal that will be palatable to their populations is proving to be difficult. So this, it's as difficult for other countries to come to agreeing to trade agreements as we find it here, apparently. Absolutely. Okay. Right. So the, the only completed one is Canada and the EU, and and that the the fact that it is now being protested against in Europe yeah. is leaving a lot of trade watchers really scratching their heads, thinking, well, if if Canada, which is which is really a, quite a benign country, relatively small compared to the EU, 
if the EU can't make a deal with Canada, then who can they? Then really, who can they make a deal yeah. with? Yeah. Well, uh, nice segue to another question, which uh, sort of occurred to me as I was listening uh, to your discussion. You know, um, the roadblocks that get in the way of sort of global integration back in the end of June, uh, the 23rd of June, uh, uh, the UK took a vote and uh, pretty solidly, 52-48, the Brexit vote mm-hmm. won. Um, uh, uh, England and Wales voted for it, Scotland, Northern Ireland against it, but on balance, 52-48, it was a solid win. David Cameron stepped down, Theresa May uh, is the new prime minister, and she says her line is, Brexit is Brexit. No one knows exactly what that means, but it doesn't mean more integration at the moment. It's the question of how much less integration will occur. So is this, uh, doesn't this complicate the picture in terms of integration, have this go forward, or what, what, how does that affect the mix? Yeah, it makes things vastly more complicated. I should say it, it does one thing in terms of creating new jobs, which is that uh, uh, bef- right now with Britain in the EU, it is only the EU that can negotiate trade agreements. So all of the mm-hmm. trade negotiators mm-hmm. are in Brussels. Uh, Britain will now need to assemble a group of uh, trade negotiators. So if anybody out there has those skills, there, there <laughs> should be o- new jobs. Open, huh? it, is, it is the creation check, of a check new Check online industry. for the postings. Uh, and, and in fact, the talk was that Britain was going to go shopping for trade negotiators in Australia and <laughs> Singapore and other countries that were globally connected, uh, because that's really where the skills are. How does it make things more complicated? Well, number one, Britain needs to determine its relationship to the EU. So there's, there's one set of complications. The second set is that Britain was really a force, I think, in favor of the TTIP, of the US-EU agreement, right? And so without that counterweight, right, yeah. the deal with the EU might be harder. The third issue is an intra-EU. It's not just Britain's relationship with the EU, but Ireland is now concerned. And Ireland has now said, mm. is Ireland shares a border. Ireland doesn't want to close off to Britain. If Britain is mm. totally ejected from the EU common market, Ireland has now said that, you know, we will maintain open trade with Britain. Legally, within EU rules, they can't do that, right? Hmm. But it's also against their own economic interests to wall themselves off. Sure. Uh, So the issue is then what should the U.S. do? I put forward very early that the U.S. should should work to negotiate a deal with Britain. Now, that Hmm. can't be fully determined until we know Britain's standing with Europe. But there are options for the U.S. Uh, first of all, Britain is about you know, equal in terms of norms, in terms of rule of law. Britain is about the economic size of California, Oregon, and Washington. So it's not an overwhelming mm-hmm. foreign power. Uh, uh, we could integrate them into NAFTA. We mm-hmm. could integrate them into the TPP. Uh, we could just do a bilateral mm-hmm. free trade agreement. So we have options. Uh, mm-hmm. And other mm. countries are also looking at what to do with Britain. Mexico has already said that they will do a separate deal with Britain. Japan has also put that on the table. So uh, it's making things more complicated, yeah. certainly. Well, in, in the meantime, uh, so in the meantime, while we're having problems integrating, much of the rest of the world is having problems integrating, uh, Brexit has certainly thrown a monkey wrench into Europe's uh, attempts to, to keep their integration, even what they had. Uh, China. Let's talk about that for a moment because you bring that up. China seems to be marching forward to the beat of its own drummer. Um, they have a concept called uh, uh, Silk Road, uh, One Belt, One Road, um, which has uh, both a land and a sea component of integration. And they're, 
they are investing a lot of political capital and capital capital, you know, money capital into making this happen. So uh, can you talk a little bit about is this is this the next wave of the future? Are they going to you know, be able to create this massive uh, integration on their terms within Asia? How's that going to play out? Yeah, One Belt, One Road is, is one of the most exciting things that's happened in the global economy. And what I mean by that is not necessarily one of the best things that will be realized, but it's really sparked uh, people's imaginations. Hmm. When, when we uh, met a group of researchers in Washington, met with uh, several researchers from a Central Asian country, one of our researchers had mentioned the U.S. Central Initiative uh, called uh, the New Silk Road. And this uh, representatives from this country took that to mean uh, the Chinese initiatives, and they lit mm. up, right? And Eastern Europe is, is very excited by this. So, so what is China doing? There, there are two components to this. One is the um, uh, Silk Road Economic Belt, which is designed to be infrastructure construction, mm. uh, railway routes, uh, between China and all the way to Europe over land. So the belt is the land. Mm. The second is the 21st century maritime Silk Road, which is port infrastructure, new shipping lanes mm. from China all mm. the way to Europe, uh, through Southeast Asia, through the Middle East, touching the east coast of Africa, uh, and, and again, to Europe. So it'll link China with Europe eventually. So, so this is largely an infrastructure creation this to is, create these networks, which is a little different approach. So there's more than infrastructure. There's uh, the Chinese envision policy coordination. Mm -hmm. uh, they have an education component, bringing uh, people from these countries to China for education. Right. There were a, a few other uh, a few other components to it, but it is mostly infrastructure. Okay. All right. Yeah. So so the the belt is the road is the is the land. The road is the ocean. All right. Uh, what are its prospects? Well, uh, there are a number, a number of issues. First, very exciting, but issue number one is who's going to pay for it, right? Mm. So uh, most of these economies are really probably hoping that China will pay for it. China has excess capital. They will invest that capital. If it pays zero returns or lower, mm. they will lose money. You can't keep losing money forever. If uh, they pay for it by loaning money to countries, right, and again, the projects don't earn money, mm. then these countries will become more in debt. We know what happens with that. We had a debt crisis, a developing right. country debt crisis in the 1980s, and we had big write-offs. Right. Right? The third issue is, and, and I should say that Chinese policymakers are now on record saying they expect many of these projects to lose money. Mm -hmm. right? They expect mm -hmm. some to make money. They expect some to lose money. Yeah. The third issue, and this really gets back to my contention, and I will say it is an assertion and a contention. It is not proved my contention that mm -hmm. if, if we don't write the rules, no one will, which is we're seeing develop in Asia a competition among the great powers. So Xi Jinping from China, uh, uh, Modi from India, you'll see it's, it's not quite comical, but one can see that it could be taken to be comical, where, where Xi Jinping will go to Central Asia and sign 12 MOUs and five other trade deals with Kazakhstan, and then three months later, Modi will go to Kazakhstan <laughs> and sign a number of deals. And you see mm -hmm. these guys uh, telling each other. Uh, China has this big uh, every three years meeting with Africa. India just started it. India is, yeah. is meeting with Africa. Japan is also wow. meeting periodically with African leaders. Hmm. So no one, and then, hmm. you know, in terms of Central Asia, Russia has equities also. 
So, so I think mm. everyone wants to benefit from China, but no one really wants to be under the control of China, mm. right? So you've got those issues. Mm. On the whole, right, if they create infrastructure, yeah. even if it loses money, right, there will be a benefit. And we saw that, uh, you know, in the U.S. in the big telco tech boom in the U.S., 1999 to 2001, mm -hmm. right, overinvestment, but we were left with the infrastructure, right, right which we right. could use over the long term. Yeah. Other people lost money. Hmm. So, so that's one belt, one road. Uh, it's just getting started. Even, even the Chinese don't know whether it's an initiative, a strategy, and quite frankly, within the Chinese government, uh, you know, every entrepreneurial bureaucrat is trying to link their work to One Belt, One Road. Mm -hmm. So we have people now saying, mm -hmm. yes, well, Latin American projects should be part of One Belt, One mm -hmm. Road. So it's really something to see uh, how it develops, but mm -hmm. there, there are risks to Great. it as well. Great. Fantastic. Let's take questions from you. This should be a conversation, a dialogue. Volker? Thank you. Um, I really appreciate your presentation, and I would like to ask the question to address what you said, to support the global growth and address undesirable behavior. And I don't mean it from an administrative point of view, but from a climate and the COP21 and right. other points of views that we know if we continue to develop the way we have developed, we have no future. Could you address that, please? Sure. Um, so... Let's link it back to uh, the international economy. There, there, I am not a climate person. We have actual climate people at RAND. So I, think I didn't think you were a wine person either, but you well. apparently know a lot about that. <laughs> right. So go for so it. So I have, I have hidden skills. Uh, but economists always feel more free to discuss uh, issues they don't know anything about than issues they do know <laughs> things about. We're kind of unbound by knowing the, the, the uh, deep problems. Um, let me give you the one hand, the other hand. On the one hand, yes, growth will cause more pollution, all right? But it is, it is difficult to see how the developed world can say to the developing world that you should not be allowed to attain decent standards of living, right? And, you know, standards of living in many parts of the world are quite poor. So, you know, I, 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 I think that the developed world can say all they want to Africa and to China that you have to stay where you are, but they're not going to do it, mm -hmm. right? So then we have really, really two other options. One is uh, slow down reverse growth in the developed world, right? That may have some environmental benefits that will be almost impossible politically. All you have to do is see, uh, see how... Uh, voting publics behave during recessions, right? And when we really talk about slowing down growth, right, it's, we can say in the abstract, yes, we should live more simply, we should slow down growth. I can tell you the equivalent, which means we should enter into permanent recession, right? That's politically unsustainable, right? Even zero growth is politically unsustainable, right? So that then means producing economic output much more efficiently, Right, and there are a number of ways to do that, and there are a number of ways that can be developed to do that. Right, I would, I would personally would probably fall in the category of techno optimist, but even now there are things uh, we can be doing more efficiently. The U.S. has actually made some good progress. So I think uh, 2016, 2015 or 2016, was the year that um, 
that natural gas surpassed coal as the leading fuel for generating electricity. Right? That's a pretty big environmental benefit. Uh, U.S. administrations have voiced uh, the desire to end the coal industry in the United States. Again, good story, bad story. Environmentally, that's great, right? But people who live in coal mining towns are not all going to become coders for Google. Right? <laughs> so if we're concerned about the labor market, mm. right, that really needs to be taken into account. I think, I think that's the way I would view the, the, the being a force for good in the environment. So developing cleaner technologies, helping propagate those technologies, right? Are there changes in intellectual property rules we should, we should institute? Are there changes in investment rules that we should institute per, to propagate those technologies more? Good. Another, another question? Yes, you in the front row. Thanks so much. Um, so you spoke mostly about integration in terms of the exchange of goods, the flow of capital, and then in the case of the One Belt, One Road in terms of infrastructure. Right. What about labor mobility, and specifically in terms of the, the predicted effects of migration on right. the U.S., including the distribution of that? So the conversation about migration in Pittsburgh, for example, is very right. different than what you see in other parts of the country, but also in terms of what's you know, the research on remittances and their impact globally. Right. Okay. Um, migration. Well, migration, I think, is the thing that made British voters most uncomfortable. So I'm going to do the smart thing and ignore the cultural issues. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will stick straight with, with the economic issues. Right? I think the, the case for immigration is pretty strong from an economic standpoint. Let's take, let's take the U.S. All right? uh, if, if, we, if we think that the U.S., it's, there's value to the U.S. to having a growing labor market, to maintaining its weight in global population, the only reason that the United States is able to maintain its share of global population is because of immigration. Immigration since the 90s it is, is at its highest level since at least the 1850s. Right? I have some of those numbers in the report. I don't remember them. Right? But so, so number one, uh, you know, immigrants generally, generally younger, they'll form part of the labor force. Second issue is I was in San Francisco for six years before coming to work for RAND. Uh, a very large share of startups are started by immigrants. Right? So there are, there are actually two issues with that. One is, right, is immigrants are, are involved in startups, right? The second issue from a U.S. economic standpoint, one of the big challenges we face, not international, but domestic challenges, is that the rate of startups has been falling since the 1970s. And that's really mm -hmm. important because we always talk about how small business is the job generator. That's not quite right. It's new companies that are the job mm -hmm. generator, right? So that's kind of a that's double benefit from immigration, right? Um, th that would be my take on immigration. Now, you know, there are cultural issues. That was a problem with, with uh, the British vote, apparently. Uh, and that's for other, that's for our, our experts in cultural affairs to handle. <laughs> Good. Yes, sir. Thank you. Earlier in your um, presentation, you talked about the uh, U.S. Budget Office's projection that entitlements and debt will consume 95% of our, of our current budget on a line right. in 2040. Uh, and I don't dispute that. I guess what I'm interested in is have you done some of the same um, projections or has somebody on what happens in Europe? Because I look at the European situation yeah. to happen earlier than 2040, which will have a dramatic effect on the world economy. And so I, that's, I'd, ask, I'd ask for your yeah. thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure that the EU has done those projections. I haven't, I haven't looked at them. 
What I would say is that um, demographic trends in Europe are worse than in the United States. Aging is faster. Social uh, benefits are higher. So, yeah, I would say usually it's the U.S. at the leading edge of things. The U.S. is at the leading edge of, te edge of technology development. It's at the leading edge of, of income inequality. Right? Other countries are following this trend. I think it's going to be Europe that's, that's at the leading edge of, of this public finance crisis. Now, I would say Japan also has a similar problem. There is one thing that's different in Europe and Japan, and it's something that I don't quite understand. Uh, think back to towards the beginning of my talk. I talked about uh, U.S. labor force participation falling. It's actually been rising in Europe and Japan, right? Now, I think mm -hmm. in Japan, in Japan, there's, there's an, easy, an easy get, and that's women in the labor market. Right, because Japan rate of female labor force participation historically pretty low, so they need to bring they're bringing women into the labor market. They've got it solved. Europe, I don't understand. That's one way to mm -hmm. handle the problem, but it's a short-term fix. They, I think that's yet another problem that Europe is facing. Daniel, you've given us a picture of failing collective efforts to maintain. Western control over rules-based transactions in a global economy, but you've also given us lots of examples of how bilateralism is succeeding. So can you share with us your sense of how the growth of bilateralism might affect the rules-based economy? And could you give us some examples of the rules that are important to maintain the flow of imports and exports for the Western countries. Okay, so bilateralism and rules. Bilateralism is, is uh, a good temporary fix. And when bilateralism started really from the U.S. point of view, uh, really the big example was Canada, U.S., and then NAFTA, right? NAFTA was in part a means to an end. It was in part a means to get a multilateral agreement. And the idea was we're negotiating the Uruguay round. That's the, what that created the WTO in 1995. That's going very slowly. We're going to push forward on NAFTA. Mm. And the term was competitive liberalization. So bilateralism was a means to an end. The, there are a couple big risks with bilateralism. One is that it kind of carves the world up into smaller preferential markets. So you lose the economies of scale you get from a multilateral agreement. Second is it can be much more complicated. So we have free trade agreements, not customs unions. That means that part of a free trade agreement is you need to have rules of origin. So, for example, right, we have a free trade agreement with Mexico. What stops China from just sending its goods to Mexico, sticking a Mexican flag on them, and then getting those benefits? Well, what stops it is the rules of origin. Some percentage of that product has to be made in Mexico. Right? Eventually, you have multiple free trade agreements. You have multiple rules of origin, right? Mm -hmm. The trade lawyers do very well, <laughs> but it just becomes much more complicated, right? So, so I don't think bilateralism is a long-term solution. What are the, what are the key rules? Uh, there are a couple. Uh, so, so these are kind of the bedrocks of the, of the WTO system, most favored, na most favored nation treatment. You, any nation is treated as well as the best treatment given mm. to any other nation. Uh, uh, one is national treatment. If, if I, a U.S. company set up in Britain, 
I am treated just like a British company is treated. If I am set up in China, I am treated exactly the same way a China company, a Chinese company is treated. I think in some cases we want to be treated better, but we'll go with national treatment. Um, Non-discrimination. Those are kind of the bedrocks. But the global economy changes, and, and that's why trade agreements mm -hmm. need to be negotiated and renegotiated. So one of the, one of the contents of the TPP uh, has to do with data, right? So, so control of data, uh, how data can be used, why is that? That relates, uh, I believe, if my details right, that relates to the issue of, of Internet sales, right? 20 years ago when the WTO, 20, 21 years ago when the WTO went into effect, right, uh, Amazon existed or not? Not. Not, okay? So, you know, Internet sales were not part of this. Now the issue is how do you create uh, trade rules so that someone in mm -hmm. the Philippines or someone in Vietnam can order something from Amazon, for example, right? So, so, so that's not a specific rule. That doesn't quite get to the second part of the question, but the, the bedrock rules need to develop with the way the global economy has developed. Howard, let me ask you a quick question. How does the, the issues that you brought up uh, relate to our economy and our prosperity? It's kind of what you started with. The premise yeah. was the reason why we have uh, global integration, why we created this system of rules, the goal wasn't to create a global, in, globally integrated system. The, the idea was this was going to help U.S. growth and prosperity can you talk for a moment, drill down on that a little? Because it's not necessarily obvious to to everyone that well, what's that connection? How does that how does that work? Yeah. So, um, I guess I would I would think of that as you know how how important is the global economy to the success yeah. of the U.S. economy? Right. Yeah. So you know I, I study the global economy. That's uh, that's my taste, my interest. But I would have to admit, you know, unfortunately, the the bulk of the work the bulk of how the U.S. economy performs really is up to domestic policy. So mm. where the global economy fits in, it gives us economies of scale, it gives us higher productivity, mm. it helps with growth. I think it's particularly important for manufacturing and agriculture. And, and one of the things that, that gets neglected in the discussion of, of uh, trade and manufacturing is that you know everyone's worried about manufacturing shrinking relative to the size of the economy. We would expect that as you become richer, you don't keep consuming the same proportion of manufactured items, right? If I get to a certain level of, of income, I might have two cars. If I double my income, it's very unlikely that I'm going to want four cars, right? So just for the health of manufacturing, you want, uh, you want to be able to trade. And before I get to the domestic issues, I'll just give a, a good example. So I was looking at, at, at steel data, right? And... and uh, I know steel is under a lot of pressure from from China, uh, but in terms of the the level of steel production, you know it's it's actually with ups and downs. It's actually been pretty level since 1995. It mm -hmm. hasn't grown, but overall U.S. steel and steel products uh, production mm -hmm. production not consumption production has been has been pretty flat. Right, it hasn't gone down. Mm -hmm. Right. What else has been happening? Well, since about 2004. Uh, steel exports have gone up pretty dramatically, right? Which means that the reason that steel has managed to maintain levels of production, we'd like to see mm -hmm. it grow, but it's managed mm -hmm. to maintain levels of production, is because of exports. All right. So, yeah. so that's the international economy, and I can talk uh, much more about that. 
of course, including of, you know exports and imports of wine, which is you know, near to everyone's heart. So, but you know, in terms of the domestic policy, what what really is important? Well, you know, domestic regulation. How easy yeah. is it to form a business? How easy is it mm -hmm. to start a business? How easy is it to move from a town where the economy is declining? To a town where it's not. If you have, to, if you if you're in a career where you have to be licensed, right? Let's say you're a lawyer, and I know this because I have family members who have moved, right? You have the bar exam in your state. You have to pass a bar exam in a new state, right? There are all kinds of small barriers to, to mobility. Uh, the rate of startups, right? That's largely set by domestic policy. Mm -hmm. um, rules over energy use. The budget, right? And and uh, and social protections, the level of quality of education, right? School to work, right? How easy is it to transition school to work? These are all really domestic policies, and and I think mm -hmm. they're I think they're they're more important, unfortunately for me, but really for the U.S. Right, right. So s stick to your knitting domestically. That's the it's the important foundation. The integration is is important, but the core of what's going to determine it is we, we get to determine ourselves. Yeah. Or not. Yeah, I mean, you say stick to your knitting, I say create a better future. They're, they're all the same. Okay. <laughs> last question. If, if anybody has a last question. Yes, sir. I haven't heard you say anything about interest rates and the short and long-term impact of them as you see it. Yeah. Um, well, you, you won't hear much sensible from me on that. <laughs> that. That is one area of economics I don't know much about. <laughs> Uh, in fact, you know, this gives some, some insight into how, how RAND works and why I think most, uh, since Michael's here, I'll say since all of our uh, reports are extremely high quality and high impact, is, uh, is we, you know, we put them through a peer review. And one mm -hmm. of my reviewers really wanted me to talk much more about the Fed and about interest rates. And if you read the report, uh, you'll find that I didn't talk much more about the Fed and interest rates because uh, financial economics, monetary economics is, is really not an area I know much about. Um, so I know that, you know, the, the small areas that I touched on there are that, you know, the, 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 the amount of sovereign debt in the world now that it's negative interest rates is quite large. So that bodes ill for the short to medium term of the global economy. There's an expectation that things will slow down. I would bring that back to making sure that the IMF and the other uh, international financial institutions are, are prepared for global economic problems. Uh, the other big challenge really is, as, as you most likely know, right, how the Fed reverses its essentially zero interest rate policy. That's going to be important because when, not if, when recession comes back to the United States, the Fed will, will, will want to have enough ammunition to handle that. Uh, you know, how to actually do that, tough problem. And I'm glad we have the Fed Board of Governors handling it, not me. And you should be glad about that, too. <laughs> For a guy who doesn't know anything about interest rates, you did pretty well to me, I thought. No, thanks. Very good. All right. of respecting your time. We're going to wrap up on time tonight, but um, let, let me start by thanking uh, Michael Wynn. And this presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.